Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka, and this is the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news, broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast, and feel free to get in touch with us via the Triple R website or Bite Into It's Facebook or Twitter accounts. Welcome to Bite Into It. A uh, big warm welcome to all of the listeners out there. I hope you're keeping cosy wherever you are. We've got Ro Murray with us. Good evening. Good to have you. And Mr. Daniel Morganti. Hello, hello. I like to put a mister in front of the people pressing the buttons for some reason. I don't know why that is. I think I've got an inherent respect for uh, for people who are pressing buttons. And uh, I'm Vanessa Taholka. No respect for myself there. Uh, tonight, we deep dive into a great new read. It's called Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers and Algorithmic Matchmakers. And we'll be speaking with evolutionary biologist and author Rob Brooks about that. It's a great read. Um, To my chagrin, I have not finished it yet. Ro, how about you? (laughs) Oh, gosh, I was in the same boat. Um, I picked it up thinking, oh, yes, this is a a book I'm going to read because we're going to talk about it on the show and got hooked really hard, really fast. And it's immensely complex, which is exciting. There's a lot of ground to cover. So um, there was a bit of speed reading and a little bit of dog-earing and a little bit of, you know, highlighting passages. I'm looking forward to redoing it. I feel right the same. Mm. You know, there's a lot of footnotes there that you're just like, hang on, I just need to flick to the back and check this. That that sounds familiar. What was mm-hmm. that? Refresh my memory. This is great. Before we get there, of course, we've got some news this week. What's happening in the world? Oh, well, as we all know and love, we love our TV and we love our streaming TV. So um, Netflix just ran the virtual convention called Geeked Week, which ran from the 8th to the 12th of June in Australia, and they have made some pretty epic movie and TV announcements. We're talking Stranger Things Season 4, Shadow and Bone Season 2, The Sandman for our comic buff friends, Umbrella Academy Season 3, The Masters of the Universe Revelation, Vikings spin-off called Vikings Valhalla has been announced, Lock and Key, Twilight of the Gods, Season 2 of The Witcher, Resident Evil and a whole lot more. So um, scratch that binging itch. There is going to be a heck of a lot of really, really cool geeky stuff coming. What I'm so excited about is how Netflix seems to have embraced Aussie-made content more Mm. than some of the other streaming channels. And in recent times, we've seen great Aussie classic films like Malcolm pop up there. Uh, Any tech lovers should certainly look that one up if you haven't caught it before. Worth a rewatch too. Great to see some recognisable Melbourne locations in that film. And... I noticed that The Secret Life of Us had come on. Now, that's something I missed the first time around. Yes. But incredible for the St Kilda locations there. They talk about uh, the, the foo bar, and I'm like, I remember hearing that that existed. I went to the foo bar. <laughs> <laughs> I lived in St Kilda around that time, so it was a real – I saw that pop up and I was like, hang on a minute, and I was like, oh, God, I feel like I'm living back in my $1,200 Ford Laser. Oh. <laughs> I had a with Ford a big, laser. I had big a laser rust too. hole yeah. in the back. I, and <laughs> I called it the laser amazer. Oh, it was, was never that very good. far from amazing. <laughs> oh yeah, I had to go to pick a part to get a roadworthy for uh, mine. So. Oh, right. <laughs> so that was that was my era, the secret life of us <laughs> back Incredible. on telly. Uh, well, do do support that Aussie content, Dan? Have you found anything there? Uh, no, it's somewhat adjacent. I've just heard that Netflix, their like strategy at the moment is just to give money to anyone who wants to make anything. So if you come in with a halfway decent idea, they'll just like, yeah, how much do you need? And you can go out and make it. I think they're doing like a scattershot approach, like the more content that 
they bring in, the more people like are going for the like the ladybug thing, you know, the yeah. the first time filmmaker um, with a good Green idea. Green light projects. Yeah. yeah. So um, if you're in the mood to try and pitch to Netflix, uh, it sounds like they got a fairly uh, open door policy at the moment. Yeah, really couldn't be a better time. Yeah. I think it's exciting. And, yeah, it looks like there's some great stuff coming out. Mm. Yeah, definitely. So if you want to check it out, um, on Twitter, Netflix Geeked is the handle and they've got thread after thread and trailer after trailer of all of the hot gossip about your favourite exciting new releases. So you can hop on that Twitter account and get very excited. Um, and in other news, Apple Podcast subscriptions are live. So this gives podcast creators the opportunity to create premium or freemium subscription products for their shows. Creators can set their own pricing and they'll be able to sell subscriptions to individual shows or a group of shows. Apple will charge podcast creators nineteen ninety nine per year to use those features. In addition, Apple will take 30% of revenue, of course, they have to because uh, they don't have enough money. Um, from each transaction, the first year of usage, this drops to 15% following years. Um, so it's just like the Apple App Store. Um, this is the face of massive competition from Spotify Podcasts. Um, so once you commit to a platform, it's very hard to shift your listeners to a new platform. So uh, they have announced a suite of premium subscription tools for podcasters, which is great. And uh, it, it seems like they're trying to capture a lot of... Uh, maybe the Patreon market as well, because mm-hmm. a lot of podcasts uh, utilize Patreon, which um, this seems like it's it's coming to that. It's like a one-stop shop instead of having to direct your fans to a separate website to support you. It makes uh, so much you. sense, right? You know, podcasts are built on their relationship with their communities. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so many of them have live events and all these other ways of connecting with mm. their communities and, mm. you know, they spurn all this, all this kind of merch as well. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And as a podcaster myself, I'm looking forward to trying this out. What's the name of your podcast, Dan? Uh, Procrastination Pals. It's Perfect. for what you're doing when you should be doing something else. It's, I like the alliteration. Yeah, <laughs> it's nice. uh, it's dumb chat if you're. And, and have to you kill locked yourself time. into one of these platforms yet? And some of the, the um, services. I I uh, I'm on all platforms, mm. but use a like a third party syndication website called Captivate, and that'll okay. just publish it to other. Um, platforms, but for something like this, um, you know, I'm doing okay for a for a first time podcast. Uh, I I feel like anyway, I'm getting a lot of good feedback, so this is something that I could really uh, sink my teeth into, and I've, I feel like it's good. It does entry feel point. like it feels like something that um, more established podcasts would jump onto at the point where they can have a relationship with the platform. You know, how some I find a lot of British comedians, uh, you know, took up Spotify on their exclusivity kind of deal. Put your, out your podcast through us; we'll give you extra, you know, advertisement, mm. and then uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's sort of how it goes hand in hand. So I can't really imagine it working for your average, um, you know, in study type of podcasters. What do you think? Yeah, I don't know how it's going to go because a lot of people are quite sort of platform loyal. They're like, oh, I'm, I'm with Apple Podcasts or I subscribe to, I've got the Acast app or I'm on Podcast One or whatever. And they just scroll through and, and nest within a platform rather than following individual shows. And that is so an incredible opportunity too. for some people. If mm. they go, these are probably where my people are living. But I wonder how many people can tell that. You know, it's that's a pretty unique yeah. kind of offering. Yeah. Mm. And also a lot of the big podcasts, are out, they're not loyal to a particular platform. So it's like just Stuff You Should Know, for example, I'm sure mm. everyone's heard of it. Mm. That is on all the platforms. It's hard not to find Stuff You Should Know on the top of every list of every um, podcast platform. So 
you know, pros and cons to to every exclusivity or, um, you know, spreading your, yeah, definitely. spreading your wings on any platform. But. Yeah, if you want to explore some of the thinking about this, uh, you could go to hotpodnews.com and uh, they've got a lot of good commentary on news in the podcast space and can keep you really up to date. Hmm. Which we love. Yeah, we do. Hey, in another cute bit of news, uh, for $3,500, you can have your very own robot dog. Uh, we love uh, robot dogs here and uh, there have been a huge range of different offerings in the space. This particular one is not perhaps the cutest of the bunch. It is the Boston Dynamic robot dog. It's quite, um, you know, bare bones, you would say. <laughs> some, some would even say nightmare-inducing, but, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and has been put to very pragmatic uses, like in the Singapore lockdown, patrolling people um, using facial recognition to tell if people in parks weren't wearing masks and um, getting them to put masks on. That's not your ideal usage. Uh, but, yeah, that's, that's something that's kind of interesting. It was only a matter of time before Boston Dynamics started releasing consumer products and fake pets, and they've come a long way in, you know, the time that they've started to now. So, uh, Yeah, it's, so, it's, so I should clarify, by the way, mm. that um, the Boston Dy- Dy- Dynamic one is not the robot that you can purchase for $3,500. That, yes, that's very fact, expensive. It's, it's, uh, it's more like the $75,000 mark. <laughs> um, but there is a Chinese robotics company called Unitree that have a similar quadruped bot called the G01. And um, it's a fraction of the size and a fraction of the cost. Um, but they say that, you know, the, the um, I guess, capabilities of this dog are pretty amazing now. Yeah, because I, I, was, I was checking it out today and um, you can program it if you want to go for a run or a walk and have your robot dog companion. It's got enough AI in it to follow you around and walk alongside you and match its pace to you and all this kind of stuff. So um, it's going to be, yeah, I'm, I just, I'm that's a bit great. intrigued. You it's, can say heal and then go for a run together and Yeah, completely. So it, And it, you can do things like, say, perimeter, and it does that thing, that spooky thing where it goes around the borders of your place. <laughs> exactly. So, I mean, you know, and you don't have to carry those puppy poo bags around everywhere. So, amazing. Yeah. What? You just got to pick up circuit boards along the on your daily hang walk. Hang on a minute. I've got to stop yeah. and discard a battery yeah. for a moment, Mum. <laughs> <laughs> and then they do a little dance afterwards, just like all those greyhounds. Yeah. Poo foria. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I'm so uncomfortable now. We've entered the world of the organic. Yeah. Let's rein it back in. No. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. Triple R is listener-supported radio and receives no direct government funding. If you would like to financially support Triple R by donating or becoming a subscriber, hit up rrr.org.au to find out how. Triple R. Rob Brooks is an international expert on the conflicting evolutionary interests that make sex sizzle and render reproduction complex. He has won Australia's most prestigious award for science communication, the Eureka Prize, and is the author of Sex, Genes and Rock and Roll, How Evolution Has Shaped the Modern World, which won the Queensland Literary Award for Science Writing. He is, oh, I always have trouble with this word, Scientia Professor of Evolution at Uni of New South Wales, Sydney, where he founded and directed the Evolution and Ecology Research Centre, and he joins us tonight. Rob, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me on. It is a pleasure. That's quite an impressive bio there. 
<laughs> well, I get to write it myself, I think, at some point. <laughs> <laughs> They're the best kind of bio. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Absolutely love no, it. No, I so, don't believe. So um, I guess my first question out of the gate is, how does coming from an evolutionary biology background enable you to think about the pace of change facing humans now um, in terms of having relationships with technology as an aid? Good question. So I started out when I finished my, my first book, I started writing a book about, you know, the conflicts, those conflicts that make sex sizzle. I thought this deserves at least a book length treatment. It's the root cause of all sorts of ideological divisions and, you know, traumas, etc. And so, you know, this is going to be a great book. And I started writing it and you should never write a book not quite knowing where, exactly where it's going to go. It, it blew out into something enormous. And then not only was it too big, but really the most interesting things that were happening in sex and relationships right now, especially for an evolutionary biologist, are what happens when these ancient evolved minds of ours and our still quite old-fashioned cultures that, you know, our minds build and perpetuate, what happens when they smash headlong into robotics and virtual reality and especially artificial intelligence? And once I started looking into that, I just found it incredibly compelling. You know, we thought that we pushed machines' buttons, but increasingly machines are pushing our buttons, our ancient evolved buttons that make <laughs> us who we are. That and is, so that's where, I, that's where I got the idea. That is a great starting point. Um, I wonder when you think about humans and the evolution we've been through to get to this point, do you think that we are poorly or well-placed to deal with the pace of change that technology brings in this space? Well, in one level, we're completely outmatched, I think, in that, um, you know, we we evolved in living in relatively small groups, first of all as hunters and gatherers, starting out on the African savannah, but then spreading around the world, hunting and gathering food, and then small-scale agricultural societies. And so we're used to dealing with, you know, um, 100, 150 sort of close associates and friends, maybe a few more people, maybe a few more hundred people that we kind of know and can, can name, but not a lot more than that. Um, and what we're able to do now with electronic communication, living in big cities, living, working in big workplaces, um, and specifically with social media sort of curating and filing our friendships and our connections with people is we're able to interact with thousands upon thousands of people. And we just don't have the time to service all of those relationships to start with. But we also don't have the headspace because, it, you know, each friendship, each relationship takes up a certain amount of your brain, more or less. It's not exactly how it works, but more or less. Um, and so, you know, bigger-brained animals are able to have more relationships. Smaller-brained animals, as in species that are smaller-brained, are able to have fewer relationships. And there's a definite cognitive limit as well as a time limit. And we're really bumping up against that now with, you know, my 575 Facebook friends does not make me a social phenomenon. It just means that there's all sorts of somebodies that I used to know clogging up that that space. Absolutely. And in the book, you discuss, you know, Dunbar's number, the, the specific size of the social group that we can keep connected to. Um, and obviously, social media has affected this exactly how you've just said. We're holding on to people we would normally move on from. We're expanding our network so much harder. Um, one thing for our uh, listeners at home, can you explain what allo-grooming is 
and it's important to these relationships. Right. So if you've ever been to Africa or if you've ever been to the sort of Africa, the primate enclosure zoo, you would have noticed that monkeys um, and baboons and great apes, they all do something bizarre, and that is that they pick away at one another's skin. And first thing that that does is it removes ectoparasites. That's really important. You want to get rid of parasites, make sure that you don't end up with fleas, etc. Um, but more than that, that attention that you're spending with another individual is attention shoring up an alliance. It's saying, today I'm picking the fleas out of your coat, but tomorrow when you need me in a fight, I'm going to be there. And so the relationships between individuals can be mapped very directly to how much time they spend grooming one another. So aloe just means one another. Allo grooming, you're grooming one another. Now, humans evolved something very cute and clever, um, and that is that instead of having to, to groom one-on-one -on -one with one another, we were able to groom large numbers of people at one time. Um, specifically, we, we were able to, to groom about four people quite intimately um, in intimate conversations. So you can have a conversation with four of you that where everybody can keep track of what everyone else is saying and thinking in that conversation. Of course, a conversation can be bigger. Many conversations are smaller. But that invention or that evolution of complex language so that we could basically gossip, that's <laughs> our equivalent of picking fleas out of each other's coats, that enabled human language to, go, to, to evolve, obviously, for human brains to, to multiply and our social world to multiply by a factor of four, which is why we're now able to cooperate to do all the amazing things that humans do in societies. And so the grooming and picking of stuff, you know, fleas out of each other's coat combined with language, it basically made humans these incredibly successful organisms. Gosh, where does that leave us with the whole great minds discuss ideas, average minds discuss events, and small minds discuss people sort of theory? <laughs> yeah. I, I think it's all completely inverted that, you know, That's... the next time you go to the hairdresser and you just feel so nice that somebody's touching your hair... You know where that's come from. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, I'm also interested now in the power of social media to pick really large-scale fights with people. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it does raise that question, you know, how did we expect social media to, ex to you know, potentially um, affect the amount of connections that we could have and, and then how has it actually affected our, our number of relationships and our closeness of people? Yeah, I mean, you know, nobody sat down and designed social media and said it's going to be like this and we'll have the friend button and we'll have the like button, et cetera, et cetera. You know, it started out Mark Zuckerberg wanting to keep track of the rankings that he and his mates had, um, you know, um, on Harvard campus for basically, you know, the girls that they were attracted to. And it's all very, you know, objectifying and not all that wholesome. Mm. Um, and all of a sudden, he, they realized that they could do something more serious, which is sort of keep track of who's connected to whom, and then build those connections into something that eventually would be, you know, monetizable. Uh, but at every stage, what's happened is that the social medium has evolved to reflect our social worlds. It's basically sort of swept into our social worlds and taken the shape of our social worlds to start with. Where it's been clunky, like, you know, all, all, all people you're connected to on Facebook are called friends, is that it doesn't necessarily, or it didn't to start with, um, differentiate between, you know, besties, close friends, <laughs> friends, distance acquaintances, mm. frenemies, etc. My However, space top ten. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Machine learning algorithms are doing that for us. They're starting to figure out, I don't really care whether that guy you haven't seen since year six has, you know, <laughs> caught a fish this weekend, but I do really care whether my bestie just had a baby this weekend. And so the algorithms basically have to figure out who's the distant acquaintance and who's the bestie and how do we prioritize what we show people. And what that's starting to do is it's starting again to reflect that structure of the way that we make friendships. Yes. And, um, of course, we've all heard about uh, the, the impact on mental health of social media, like uh, Instagram being one of the big ones that people blame uh, because it shows people's lives better than they actually are and no one feels like they can measure up. Um, so how's, how, what, what's the data looking like on the impact of mental health? Well, I mean, it's pretty dire in that we know, um, certainly for the last decade, slightly longer than a decade, there's been a very, very strong uptick in youth mood disorders, specifically um, anxiety and depression. We know that teenagers today are much more likely to harm themselves, but they're also much less likely to harm one another. Um, and that's because their interactions are increasingly virtual. Um, and part of it's because, you know, the, the, the mistakes that they make are very public um, and the, the there's kind of a currency, there's a direct quantitative measure of how much people like the thing you've said or how much they like you, at least that's how we feel about it. So we felt that the social comparison dimension of, of sites like Instagram was probably what was causing this. It certainly curiously, you know, emerged as the smartphone blossomed around the world. Um, but something very interesting came out of the pandemic, and that is that, and this, this isn't in the book because it's too new, um, you know, mm -hmm. I'd already done, done all the, the proofs and stuff on the book, but the person, Jean Twenge, who's drawn attention to a lot of these um, negative effects of social media, and, you know, it's contested, but nonetheless, she's got fairly compelling evidence that this is what's happening with social media, looked at what happened during lockdowns, and now during lockdowns, we went more to our phones, and we expected the uptick in um, teenage mood disorders to be even more dramatic because they're spending more time on their mobile phones um, and specifically on social media. But what happened was it's actually gone down. And the reason it's gone down seems to be associated with the fact that teens are getting more sleep um, and they were spending more time with their families in real life face-to-face -face conversations, oh, even though they were still spending lots of time on social media because they were rolling out of bed and going straight into class. They weren't commuting. And that commuting time has kind of been repurposed to the wholesomeness of a bit of sleep and a bit of time with your parents. Oh, I love that. I have heard mm. anecdotally so many people saying that one of the less challenging and more lovely things about extended lockdowns has been just being able to have meals together in the middle of the day with their families. Hmm. That was that was certainly a wonderful thing for us, Aww. I must say. Although having a kid go through the HSC, the first kid in our house going oh. through the HSC during lockdown wasn't fantastic. Oh, you feel for them, don't you? Yeah, oh, so much. That's so, so tough. Um, so I guess if we're going to do a quick rundown on the front cover of your book, um, Artificial Intimacy, for our listeners at home, we're talking to Rob Brooks and it's all about virtual friends, digital lovers and algorithmic, blah, algorithmic matchmakers. <laughs> um, I actually had a question for you around um, sex tech and obviously sex tech is a field that's been uh, growing um, for our listeners at home. It's basically a 
deliberate movement or niche to create text specifically for pleasure. You know, examples can be everything from dating apps to um, apps that drive pleasure devices and things like that. Um, Based on your research and your work around this book, where do you think the most valuable areas for effort and future development for sex tech should be? That's a really good question. I think, um, you know, you're seeing the, the prominent, the sort of the, the poster children for this are the sex robots. And I'm, I argue throughout the book, although they make many appearances in the book, I argue that they're, they're kind of niche um, because, you know, you've got to have ironclad self-confidence to leave Roxy the sex robot out on the couch when your friends come around, etc. And it's a little bit uncanny and a little bit weird. But um, You don't think that's are, changing I anytime that, soon. Love that. It's not not at the pace that the other stuff's changing. Yes. I think that um, you know smart sex toys. That uh, there's a machine um, that uh, is um, it's apparently used AI to to um, pull apart the. Um, can I use adult words on this show? Yes, you can. Uh, just a quick a quick warning to our listeners. You know, if there's any sensitive ears around, uh, maybe maybe jump away for the next uh, fifteen minutes. Short. Um, so, so to analyse what it calls the building blocks of blowjobs, but basically AI learning has like gone to school on I think pornography, which is not necessarily the best way to learn how to pleasure people, um, and <laughs> then built a machine that does this and cycles through a number of different ways of doing things. I think the more impressive tech is actually the um, the, the tech for people with vulvas, which is uh, one of them is called Lioness, and that's basically trained of how users use the device. It then sends the information back and machine learning figures out what kind of patterns of vibration and movement to emphasise and to try out in order to maximise the kind of pleasure that people are getting. It is, so that's uh, awesome. That's such an interesting mm. thing because, you know, when we first heard about um, devices capturing data like this, there were a lot of fair questions asked about the ethics of capturing this data, the sensitivity about giving up this data and what it would go to, but then to suddenly hear that, well, this might drive, you know, more orgasms per person in the world, you kind of think that is a really interesting outcome and probably one that we didn't all expect. Yeah, that's definitely not not a sad thing. Um, And certainly some of the really early kind of prototypes were just like, we can pair with your, um, you know, MP3 player so, so that it, you know, pulses with a beat and obviously this kind of tech is vastly far and beyond from a pleasure standpoint you know a satisfying resolution yeah and then the volume of data that they're taking in as well i mean Mm. i always think that's interesting if you can it's all about how can you get a good training data set so wow practice 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 And, and now if you imagine some of these things would, would couple up so that, you know, two people in different rooms with whatever configuration of genitals um, decide to, to spend some time together, each with their own devices, but those devices talking to each other, you're then able to get not only some kind of virtual sex where there's kind of a, um, you know, mutual give and take kind of thing going on, but on top of that you're able to get, um, you know, the, the, the machine learning basically guiding people in a, in a way that generates pleasure that's pleasurable for both of you. So, you know, maybe people won't be as sensitive as lovers because the machine's doing some of that thinking and responding and is this okaying? Um, but nonetheless, and, and then why, why, why constrain it to two people? What about, you know, more? Because, you know, that's just a programming issue then. Um, so I think that, the, that sex tech and then pairing sex tech to uh, things like virtual reality, 
choose your own virtual reality pornographic adventures coupled with, you know, actual devices that stimulate people. Um, you know, the world is literally your oyster. Quite literally. <laughs> yes. I, I, I love this talk about teledildonics and everything because the potential has been there, but I think the data to um, make these experiences uh, maybe more pleasant certainly hasn't been part of the equation mm. until recent times. And, yeah, we're seeing yeah. a lot of maturation in this field. Cindy Gallup's been talking about it a lot for a while. Yeah. Do you mind if we jump a little to when artificial intimacy goes bad? Um, and I'm oh, thinking, absolutely. I'm thinking in the romantic space. So real-life romance scams have been common and successful even in a very low-tech world. Mm. Uh, what mm-hmm. risks might there be of scaling up that ability for bad actors to, say, cheat or manipulate or exploit vulnerabilities in people? Yeah, so, uh, you know, if, if you can imagine that um, apps might help you with your dating life, might help you to, um, you know, come up with new ideas of things you might want to do on a date or things you might want to say on a date, you know, and we're not that far from having those kinds of suggestions or actually having useful suggestions from that kind of stuff. And those apps can learn from what kind of conversations people are having and start to put, you know, in front of, of players, in front of um, of, of users, things that they might say or do that might work. Well, who's to say that that kind of technique should be limited to things that are, you know, with the best interests of one another in mind? Because you only have to pop onto, you know, Reddit or various other parts of the manosphere to see that there's a whole industry devoted to basically trying to manipulate people into sex. And likewise, there's whole industries of people trying to manipulate people into falling in love, um, largely so that they can be fleeced out of their income. Mm. And so, you know, as uh, machine learning learns to, to mine the text of conversations and figure out what works in conversations and what doesn't, and what works on particular types of people and what doesn't. You have this new ecosystem of possibilities of one is, is what I call deepfake catfish, where, you know, basically you deepfake an entire personality, not just a video or some pictures of somebody who has never existed, but who's basically designed purely to manipulate a particular target and get them to part with their savings. Um, or, you know, dating apps that, that manipulate folks, um, that gives people one per party an unfair advantage in interactions, or that learn how to, you know, um, keep people on the platform, you know, interacting with the thing, um, but n- not by making them fall in love, but by, you know, giving them that whole thing where you're arguing with somebody like an ex um, and spending your, in- your evening kind of miserable. Um, but that could be the YouTube of the future, you know, arguing with a bot uh, that you think you loved once. So, you know, I, I've jumbled a bunch of different examples together, but just because something is about sex or about love doesn't mean that it's always going to be nice because yes. that, there's always been a conflicted side to that. Um, so, like, the, continuing with the uh, not-so-nice side of this kind of stuff, um, the, we've seen fringe groups like incels mention evolutionary biology um, in this kind of thing. Is this like is this something a new phenomenon, or do they have any uh, grounds that they're um, they're basing this on that's uh, actually real, or is it just a bunch of weird, sad young men? Well, I mean, it's really tempting to write them off because they 
you know, they are sad and they are weird. Um, and they do do real harm. People like Elliot Rudge or Alec Manassian have, you know, killed people mm. and maimed people and um, out of their sheer sexual self-entitlement and their bitterness that basically the world hasn't delivered them some, you know, harem fantasy that they thought that they were entitled to. However, at the base of that, beneath those spectacularly misled individuals, there is a much larger groundswell of people who are simply out of the mating market. They are not able to attract people um, certainly not the, the kind of people that they would want to attract. And they're lonely and they feel like they're unable to have that entire part of human experience. Um, you know, it may be that they're physically isolated. It may be that there's a pandemic going on and they're not able to go out and meet people. It may be that they're just, you know, just not very nice to talk to. <laughs> um, for whatever reasons, there are a lot of people who are utterly miserable mm. at not being able to... To, to find a mate, and they think that that's going to last forever. Now, you, you know, every, every single person listening to this, of course, comes from a long line of non-incels. Every single one of our ancestors was not an incel. They managed to have sex at least once and raise at least one kid. Um, and things do get better. When you're, when you're a 19-year-old man and you're feeling incel-ish, you know, <laughs> things usually get better from there. Oh. And that's not just applying to, to 19-year-old men, but to people in all sorts of areas. But there are some people who are sort of chronically dateless. Um, and in all of those situations, you have to have a certain amount of sympathy for them. You might not have sympathy for the actions of the extremists, but the, the, the underlying um, concern that, that people have, you know, they're actually quite astute at realizing they blame... They blame gender equity mm. um, because essentially, you know, gender equity has meant that men don't have quite the same privilege and they're not, you're, you're not a, just a catch because you get a paycheck. Okay, so, you know, misguided blaming of gender equity. We don't want to reverse trends towards gender equity at all. Mm. Nonetheless, they're able to, you know, realize that it's different from their father's generation for that reason. Um, so stop being angry about that and deal with it, yes, etc. They blame the sexual revolution and the fact that, you know, people aren't tied into lifelong monogamy because the very attractive people, particularly in the case of male incels, the very attractive men are getting more sexual opportunities and that comes at the expense of the, the incels themselves. So they've picked up on things that, you know, evolutionary biology has shown are true and relatively uncontroversial. It's just basic market economics. In this case, the market is matings. Um, uh, but then they, they then brew that up into a whole load of, of blame and a whole load of, you know, impractical social engineering ideas, and then it feeds into right-wing extremism. So it has an unhealthy consequence for some of those people. So what can we do? What can we do to ease that? Well, actually, interestingly, the spread of pornography has probably helped make the incel problem not so bad in that a lot of people's, you know, desperation in that regard and fantasies in that regard can be serviced by porn. Now, whether or not porn amplifies some of the worst parts, you know, that, that's an ongoing discussion and there's no strong consensus on, uh, you know, whether, whether in, at the individual level it has bad effects, but at the society-wide level, it seems to have diffused some of that. So why can't sex tech, particularly virtual reality lovers, possibly sex robots, why can't that <laughs> have a similar effect in the future? 
I'm going to lay a controversial bet in favour of it actually being quite useful in that regard. That is great. Um, hey, just for our listeners, if you've just joined us, we are in conversation with Rob Brooks at the moment. He has an evolutionary biologist background and has released a book called Artificial Intimacy, Virtual Friends, Digital Lovers and Algorithmic Matchmakers. It's an incredible read and a very a nuanced, well-researched read, Rob. And I'm only partway through, I've got to say, um, and I'm loving it. Uh, thank oh, you so great. much for that empathetic kind of answer to that question because mm. it really is a very tangled web there. Dan, what's that getting you thinking about? Oh, it's just like the most uh, uh, concise way I've heard that being put with like uh, mentioned with humanity without condoning the, the actions of people and like it does get better, like being 19 and having no one that was interested, <laughs> oh. I, I understand. Although I saw the problems from within, not from without, so I was, didn't exactly turn into one of these people, but it, uh, yeah, it was, it, that's a very, uh, I was that was fantastic an answer to that. Yeah, and I'm, I'm I'm glad you enjoyed. I'm I'm quite curious um you know to- talking about you know brains and technology and obviously we've we've been um you know dating apps have been a thing for a while now and I'm very curious um you know whether dating apps themselves are, are the panacea or not but are there any technologies out there that are helping people get better at selecting their romantic uh, partners, are we getting better or are we getting worse? Or does no one know how you to know, do it at all? Yeah, <laughs> you know, we've always been a little bit clueless about this. So, you know, I think that the best that matchmakers have ever done is help people to meet each other, and then it's up to them. Um, and the algorithmic matchmakers, which include the dating apps, are, are very much like that. They sort of sort people out and they, they put together people who are of roughly the same attractiveness and more or less in the market for, you know, the same broad properties, and then it's up to them. Um, what that does, unfortunately, it means that the super attractive people get heaps of attention and the not very attractive people, for whatever reason, or just the people who are really bad at Photoshop, end up not getting very much attention at all. And so the incel problem gets worse, and it's not just a male incel problem. However, um, those apps also want you coming back, just like YouTube wants you coming back and Facebook wants you coming back. So it's not necessarily in in Tinder's interests to generate love at first sight because then your relationship with Tinder is a very short-lived one. So how do we make the incentive structures work so that um, the dating apps have a really strong incentive to find you somebody that you actually really like and choose to spend a fair amount of time with mm. and possibly establish a relationship, you know. And it doesn't have to be that the aim of the, of the game is lifelong monogamy. But if these things would save us just a little bit of time finding someone who's actually great to be with, I think that people would flock to this kind of app, but wouldn't they'd have we to love, probably pay. Yeah, wouldn't we love the transparency in an app, you know, to see what's going on in the algorithm, you know, instead of having a black box to deal with? And, and actually be able to check for dark patterns. Are they putting up someone who's tempting but really not quite in the right box and they're ignoring this box they know that's of, you know, really high-quality matches because I'll stick around longer and yeah. spend more money and see more advertising and, wow. Well, that, I was also thinking, you know, is it, uh, you know, while we were listening to um, our guest, Rob Brooks, the author of Artificial Intimacy, um, 
is it a conflict of interest for dating apps to actually find us people that we connect with longer term, hop off the app, not generate the traffic, not consume the advertising, not be a user for a period of time? Hmm. Yeah, it's an absolute conflict. One of the apps actually says now their, their goal is to get you off the app as quickly as possible. Um, you know, and that's at least at least they're paying lip service to that aim, but they're identifying that problem. Now, a lot of people just want to meet people, and they love you know the the Tinder type of model because they do get to meet people and they get to to see lots of faces, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But for other people, that's utterly overwhelming, and I'm sure it would be contributing to the rise in anxiety as well. You know, just the flood of faces and messages and all of that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I think if if there was some way of generating a, you know that kind of um, transparent situation where the the app's aim the app is optimized for the thing that people want the most, mm-hmm. I think that would probably solve an enormous number of problems in the world. Um, yeah, and I and I certainly you know, get involved in the equity-based crowdfunding for that. <laughs> that is a great idea for any um, any startup developers out there, any aspiring ones. Hey, Rob, is there anything that you've come across in this space that is helping um, teach us? We know that social media accidentally trains us in, you know, different behaviours, but has anyone tried to put this sort of phenomena to good use, say, with virtual dating coaches to educate people on respect or consent or... Anything like that? No, no. I mean, I shudder at the notion of the government building an app. Um, <laughs> they haven't built great apps lately, and they haven't done great stuff with consent lately. But, you know, even a broken clock can be right twice a day. Maybe they'll get this one right. Um, yeah. I, I think that the, 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 the scope for that is great. I think the problem is you want people need to want to do, use it. So... You know, if the app's selling you, you know, hiding the broccoli under the chips, the broccoli of an improved understanding of, of, of consent mm. under some other kind of enticement to get there, then that's one thing. But, you know, one of the things about consent education is that the people who most need it are the people who are least likely to go and, you know, mm. ask for it. Um, and, you know, that's the dilemma that I think we have with this entire conversation. So it really does take some serious creativity. There are definitely dating coach apps out there of, you know, they could have names like Get Any Girl, <laughs> you know, 10 conversational strategies, and they're it's not really very inspiring good at the confidence, moment. isn't it? <laughs> no, but they're going to get better. They will get better, you know, especially if they're able to access just the, you know, the things people say to each other on messaging apps. Um, they'll figure out what are the things that cause the conversations to go well and what are the things that cause conversations to go badly, and they will find ways to train us to do this. Um, so I'm very confident that in five years we'll all have apps of this nature and not just to do with, um, not just to do with, uh, with, with, with mating and dating, but also to do with business. You know, I, I can see I'm actually about to write a piece about the Dale Carnegie app that will be the how to make friends and influence yes. people of the 21st century. Mm. And speaking of business, um, over recent years, we've seen a lot of sex and pleasure-related tech services that have been effectively shut down by, you know, tech companies, um, credit card companies on a quite wholesale basis. You know, Facebook won't allow sex education or pleasure device ads, PayPal blocks 
payments for any kind of sex work or pleasure service, credit card processing companies, block entire website and services and all of that kind of stuff. Do you think these kind of so-called moral decisions by tech companies and particularly, you know, payment processes to sort of hamper pleasure and intimacy tech are misplaced and will hinder, hinder progress? Absolutely. I completely do. So this is part of a bigger picture, which is the um, something that's emerged with the Internet. As the Internet, you know, developed in its, the very open way that it developed, um, there was opposition immediately, particularly from the sort of social conservative right, but also from a particular strand of the left that um, don't like the, the open sexy nature of the internet um, now that open sexy nature is in, you know not all sexy in the good way there is obviously a, you know the the internet's been amazing for sex workers um they've you know um things like craigslist personals um and backpage.com allowed sex workers to advertise to screen clients to share information about unsafe um you know people and to basically operate in a way that is independent, that avoids not only dangerous clients, but, um, you know, people who want to exploit them on, on the street like pimps um, and uh, harassment from the police and all those kinds of things. Um, and those have been shut down almost overnight because the, the sort of Trojan horse against net neutrality was a, a pair of bills in the United States called um, Festa and Foster. It's yes, been a long yes, day, so I hope yes. I've got those right. You have. <laughs> um, and one was through the Senate and one was through through the Congress. And basically they were they were there to stop sex trafficking. And so there was this narrative that, you know, all sex work is all sex workers are in some sense trafficked is what that they what they pushed. And of course a large number of sex workers went absolutely not. That's not true. This is the old you know, the ancient antipathy to sex work basically coming out in a 21st century guide. Mm. And as soon as those laws came through, Craigslist Personals was closed down, Backpage.com was closed down, and people died. Mm. You know, not only were livelihoods stopped, but people were suddenly considerably less safe. And you'll see the same thing happening with all the other types of sex tech. Is You know, as soon as a, a, a large corporation is... Um, can be targeted by people who are opposed to the openness and all of the good and bad that comes with that, and it's a considerable amount of both, um, you will find that they will start to crack down on, you know, nudity, sex work-related content, sex-related content, but especially, it's especially about controlling sex work and controlling women's sex work for, for male consumption, most of all. It's an ancient battle. It's one that's played itself out so many times through so many cycles, and it's one that we really need to um, defend against if we're going to get all of these amazing benefits mm. that are likely to come with artificial intimacy. Rob, I really appreciate how you've been able to bring together so many threads of different things that are going on in technology and with relationships at the moment and weave them together to, to tell this story. And I think that this, this conversation has hopefully given our listeners a really good sense of the type of experience you get reading this book instead of it just being um, a glowing of the moment 
moment uh, recap of technology as it happens, you really set things in a context and, and sort of buffet them against all this other knowledge and data that we have. Um, it's an excellent read. It's called Artificial Intimacy. It's published by New South Books. You can find it at newsouthbooks.com.au and through lots of legit booksellers out there. Rob, thanks so much for your time this evening. It's been very educational. Thank you so much for taking the time to read it and to have me on the show. Real pleasure. Beautiful. Hey, it's been a joy making some radio with you, Dan and Ro, this week. Thanks to our fabulous guest this evening, Rob Brooks, with his book, Artificial Intimacy. Thanks to our talks producer, Elizabeth McCarthy. We've been bite into it. Hi, this is Vanessa Taholka. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's Bite Into It, a weekly radio show exploring tech news. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Wednesday. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch with us via Triple R's website or Bite Into It's Twitter or Facebook accounts.